Turn again, if you will, to the book of Haggai, toward the end of the Old Testament. Those little tiny books, two chapters. And we're in uh, chapter 2, this morning, verses 10 uh, to 19. One more week after this in Haggai. You know, nothing encourages us to go on quite as much as taking the first few successful steps. Beginning to have some success. We see this vividly illustrated as our children learn to walk and to talk. Nowhere in this world is anyone praised and, is, and encouraged so much as a child who takes their first step. Or the, or the child who first tries to say, Mama. Because we want them to know that their success is worth the effort. That they can and should continue in this course of action. We want them to know we're proud of them. Well, that's what our text is about this morning. Encouragement for God's people who have taken a first step toward faithfulness, have turned the corner to trust and obey the Lord, and the Lord encourages them in that. Although it begins with a somber note on uh, the need for that first step. Let me read the text, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest said no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of those things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with his people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive trees have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. It says two, two truths here. One rather hard and one rather encouraging. First, the hard one. Disobedience contaminates your whole life. Disobedience contaminates your whole life. In recent years, uh, since the big movie and then the discovery of the wreckage laying on the, on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean, there's been a renewed interest in the Titanic. I noticed it was Showing on television again yesterday, I didn't watch it. How is it that the unsinkable ship found itself 
laying on the bottom of the North Atlantic. Well, as I understand it, the Titanic sank because it did not have the necessary sealable watertight compartments which could be closed quickly uh, to contain the damage when it struck the iceberg. Now, modern vessels are built differently. They're honeycombed with many, many, many compartments which can be quickly sealed off so that a rip in the hull does not cause the, 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 the boat to sink and averts the disaster. May I suggest we like our lives to be like modern vessels. We like to have things compartmentalized in our life so that trouble in one area doesn't necessarily spill into the rest of our life and cause trouble there. In fact, we work hard to make our lives like that. Not to let our problems at home affect our work or our problems at work affect our home. And especially in regard to God. We really believe that we could seal off the spiritual compartment of our life, a place where there's frequently serious damage, and keep it from affecting anything else. That way the party can keep going on up on the deck, though below the waterline there's severe damage. Well, in our text this morning, God says that won't work. It does not work. We cannot ignore and contain the damage of disobedience to him and think that life will merely cruise along unaffected. Disobedience will corrupt Everything else. Now God makes this point by sending the prophet Haggai to ask the priest for a legal opinion concerning what the Old Testament law teaches. He asked them two questions, very closely related. One, if you are carrying consecrated meat, that is meat that's uh, set apart for the sacrifice, and you touch other things, does it consecrate the things that it touches? In other words, does ceremonial cleanness spread? The second question was kind of the other side of that. If you are made ceremonially unclean, which according to the law could happen if you touched a corpse or something like that, do the things which you then touch become ceremonially unclean? In other words, does ceremonial defilement spread. Now, we don't know much about ceremonial law, so let me pose those questions in terms we would understand. If you're a surgeon, you have a sterilized instrument. Does it sterilize other things it touches? Or if you have a contaminated instrument, does it contaminate the things it touches? I guarantee you want your surgeon to know the right answer to that. Well, the priest answered, just like your doctor would answer, purity is not contagious, but contamination or defilement is. And God says, so it is with my people. Whatever they do, whatever they offer, is defiled. These Israelites thought that their contact with holy things was making them holy. After all, they were God's holy nation, his chosen people. They had returned to the holy land. 
They were offering holy sacrifices on an altar consecrated to the Lord. They were served by a holy priesthood. Given all this contact with holy things, they must be holy, right? God says, on the contrary, your sin, your disobedience, is defiling everything you do, so that even your holy offerings are defiled, contaminated. And that contamination had become evident by God's judgment on their land. Everything was failing. The grain was half what it should have been. The wine was only a fraction of what it should have been. Mildew and blight and hail plagued them. Nothing was living up to their expectations. Success continued to escape them. That's what we read in verse 16 and 17. When anyone comes... came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. What was wrong? Why was that? God was bringing trouble on the rest of their lives because of their disobedience in this one area of their life, their disobedience to him. Disobedience contaminates everything. Folks, we need to hear this. We can't buy God off with a few holy acts, which we think will consecrate our rottenness. We can't plead our status in the church or our presence here this morning or our prayers or our Christian service thinking it will somehow sterilize all those sin-affected areas of our life. It doesn't work that way. But we can pretend that our sin is contained, it will have no ill effects, just because other people don't know about it. But God knows. And though we try to keep our lives safely compartmentalized, God will not let us do that. Sin which is left unaddressed will end up defiling the rest of our lives. Peter argues this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where he addresses, addresses us men concerning our marriages. He says, when we husbands fail to treat our wives with respect as fragile treasures, he calls them, as equal heirs of the grace of life, that failure will cause our prayers to be hindered. God will close his ear to us because of how we treated our wives. In other words, our disobedience in one area of our behavior will defile our relationship to God itself and eventually our relationship to everything else in life. And men, I think we especially need to hear this, for we are masters of compartmentalizing life. But disobedience cannot be compartmentalized. It will contaminate your whole life. So this morning I call you to quit playing games with sin. That private little area of disobedience which you think is so innocent, so well contained, you're wrong. It's defiling you. It must be addressed. You need to come clean with God. You need to call sin, sin, and turn away from it. 
to come and be cleansed and forgiven. For this purpose, Jesus went to the cross and gave his life to be able to forgive and cleanse your defilement. Before we move on, just an interesting note here. What sin are we talking about? And Haggai too. What sin was defiling them? They were not stealing, or committing adultery, or murdering, although this principle would apply to those things too, but that's not what was going on. Theirs was a sin of omission. They had simply been neglecting God's work. They're busy doing their work, but not getting around to what God had given them to do. They had a lack of concern for the building of God's temple. They just assigned a low priority to God's agenda in favor of priority for their own agenda. And God says, I'm not going to tolerate this. I will bring disaster on those very things which you made more important than me. Making a living, being successful, providing for your own comfort, enjoying your own family. I will not take second place, the Lord says. We've seen that before in this book. Disobedience, even the simple neglect of obedience, will contaminate your life. Brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as a nice, comfortable Christianity which demands no priority in our life, which costs us nothing, which changes nothing, but only brings God's blessing on all the things we pursue. There's no such Christianity. That's a figment of your imagination. God demands a first place. He requires that we love him with all of our heart and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strength. He forbids us to love anything more than him, uh, not the world, not our own desires. This is what it means to call Jesus Lord. Anything less than giving him first place is disobedience, and disobedience contaminates everything in our life. If anyone told you different, they're lying to you. Ah, but this hard truth is what these people in Haggai's day had finally realized, as we've seen in the weeks prior to this. By acts of hard obedience, believing and trusting God enough to act, they had now returned to resume the building of this temple. They had heeded his warning, finally put God first. And so God sent Haggai not just to remind them of the warning, but now to encourage them, which is what our second point is all about. And that's this. Repentance returns God's favor. Repentance returns God's favor. It's favor. Have you ever been in one of those situations where the more you tried to fix a problem, the worse it got? You, you, you get into this with your computer. Just try to fix a problem. And you'll have ten problems. Or it's a hundred. But no machine compares with the way people problems can escalate. When you've offended someone and you go to work it out, every word you seem to say only increases the offense, doesn't it? And, and, and how can you possibly reverse this snowballing alienation? Our relationship with God is that way. We busily patch up things, trying to get our lives together, trying to make ourselves more acceptable to God. But as we do, 
more time passes and more opportunity is lost and we do more unacceptable things. Maybe we even do worse things. And to make matters worse, we learn that God is holier than we ever dreamed he is and we are more sinful than we ever dreamed we were. And so the gap just keeps getting wider and wider until we are in despair. The hopelessness of a situation where we're at odds with God and he's holier than we ever dreamed, and we're going in the wrong direction. But today I have good news. Repentance returns God's favor. Repentance returns God's favor. God does not wait for you to get your life together so that you're worthy of his blessing. If you could do that, you wouldn't have needed a Savior. God just calls you to stop neglecting him. Stop disobeying. Stop loving other things or yourself or the world more than him. Turn around and begin to take steps of faith and obedience. God calls for a change of mind to begin to call sin, sin, and turn our backs on it. To begin to act in faith and, and, and believing enough to do something about it. And from that moment that we do, God returns his favor on us. We don't have to wait in dread, wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Is God going to accept me now? Is God going to love me now? Is God going to be over his anger now? No. Simple, sincere repentance. Faith beginning to act returns God's favor. That's what God's saying through Haggai. Listen to it again in verse 15, some excerpts here down through verse 19. Now give, give careful thought to this. From this day on, consider how things were before one stone was laid on, a, on another in the Lord's temple. From this day on, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Until, until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit, but from this day on, I will bless you. Two things seem to have happened. The people turned around and resumed God's work. They just took the first step. They didn't have the temple rebuilt. They began to lay the first course of block on that foundation. And then the other thing that happened is they planted their crops. It was that time of year. It's December, 520 B.C. Verse 19 says the seed's no longer in the barn. In other words, it's in the ground now. The winter crops are planted. The autumn rains have come. And now they've been here before. They planted last year. And it all amounted to nothing. Because their disobedience had defiled everything. So what's going to happen this year, they wonder. Are they in for another devastating year? Went into that situation, God sends Haggai with a word of encouragement. God says, remember this day. He repeatedly makes a point of it. This day. We can calculate it. It's the 18th day of December, 529 B.C. Remember this day. This is a turning point. Look back, he says. Remember how the things were before this? Remember how, you, how, how when you were doing nothing, God's, God's brought devastation on your crops? Now you have acted in faith. The work has resumed. Now hear God's encouragement for you. From this day, I will bless you. 
Oh, do you see the impact of this? God's temple wasn't finished. It was only begun. But God encouraged him through the prophet that his blessing was not bought by years of hard, faithful service. No, it is given to those who repent, who believe God enough to turn around and do what he said. Let me just say that again. God's blessing is not bought by our years of faithfulness. It is given to those who believe what God said enough to turn around and start doing it. That's exactly what the New Testament says in Romans 4, verse 4. To the man who does not work, hasn't earned it, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Some of you may be discouraged because you feel you'll never, never, ever earn God's favor. Too much water under the bridge, too many bad decisions, too much defilement in your life. You'll never, never earn God's favor. You're right, you won't. That's why Jesus came and lived and died in your place. To give you his favor. Keith Green sang about that. Words as if the Lord Jesus were saying, I love these words. My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what I've done for you. I did it all when I was dying. What God calls us to do is repent, trust him, begin to obey, begin to follow. And when you do, he lavishes blessing on you. Not after you've earned it, but freely, without earning it, when you could never earn it. Oh yes, he calls us to live a whole life pleasing to him. But even that is his work in us. It's not something we bring to pay him. It's a result of his favor that he gave us. It's a life lived in gratitude for the new status we have in Christ. It's a life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, which he gave us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's a life lived beyond our ability to live it. It's a life received by grace. The simple repentance of one who believes God's word, who trusts the Savior and begins to follow, returns God's favor. One of my favorite Proverbs is found in Proverbs 24, 26. I love this proverb. It says, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Don't you hate when people won't tell you the truth? Sometimes we think that loving words are words that would never point out our inconsistencies, would never tell us the truth. God doesn't play that game. God loves us way too much to do that. And so in our text this morning, God said his prophet to make it very clear. God cannot be bought off in one area 
while we disobey him somewhere else. Disobedience will contaminate our whole life. God loves you enough to tell you that's how it is. Don't think you can play that game. But the same God who talks straight to us also speaks words of encouragement. As a, babe, as, as a parent encourages a baby learning to walk, God encourages us. Yeah, that's the way. That's good, that's good. One more step. Come on, come, come, come to me. Keep coming. It's good. Yay for you. So it is in a life of obedience, a life as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't wait until we've mastered everything. No, he, he just calls us to take the first steps, to repent and begin to come. And God says, way to go. Look at you. You're walking. Now you're living as I made you to live. Mark this day. Everything has changed. For repentance returns God's favor. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the good news. Good news that we don't want to hear, but good news, Lord, that we can't compartmentalize our lives and, and sin against you and think that it won't affect anything else. Oh, give us grace to stop playing that game. But thank you, Lord, for your encouragement that you don't expect us to buy our way into your favor. How many years, Lord, of perfect faithfulness would it take? And then what would we do with all the years of unfaithfulness? Lord, there's no way. But Lord, you've done it all for us. In the Lord Jesus, you do it all, Lord, by giving us your spirit. And you simply ask that we repent, call sin the sin, turn away from it and begin to follow. And you give us your grace. Thank you, Lord. May we walk in it. May we believe this enough to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.